is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to the arts, from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll put them up on the air. This next one comes from a guy named Kevin Cox, who likes to call himself the Brooklyn Cowboy. And Kevin's story centers around horse racing and his dad's annual tradition of taking the family to the oldest major sporting venue of any kind in America, Saratoga Racetrack. It would all start with a list. A few days before we'd leave, it would be on my father's dresser. Q-tips, Listerine, pens, socks, underwear, and on and on it went. One would think he was Jimmy Hoffa going away for a stretch, but in reality, it was how he would prepare for our two-night excursion to Saratoga year after year. Obviously, normative society doesn't feel compelled to itemize the most trivial minutia for a 48-hour pass to Nirvana, but this wasn't just any Saratoga fan. This was the Uber fan, the greatest Saratoga fan outside of that one in your family, or your co-worker's family. Or maybe your neighbor. You get the idea. We'd shove off at 5.15 in the morning. A time that didn't work for me then, and works even less for me now. He, on the other hand, was as bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as whatever bushy-tailed is supposed to mean. We'd roll into town too early to check in, but that was okay, because we'd go right to the Spa City Diner for breakfast. Traditions, you know. After breakfast... He'd be at the table performing origami with his brand new racing form, ripping out the tracks not needed, and then refolding it so it fit perfectly into the back pants of his shorts pocket. Which, of course, were accessorized with matching loafers because isn't that what fathers do? We'd then check into the best-kept secret in town, the Brentwood Motel, located a horseshoe's throw from the seven-furlong chute of the racetrack, and across the street from some breakfast joint which is now the hot spot to go to after the races. Assuming, of course, that you don't want to hear what someone six inches away from you was saying. He would take me to watch the horses enter the starting gate in the morning. It wasn't our place to venture farther than that, you know, but that was okay, because that was a world to an eight-year-old. We'd head over to the races, and go right upstairs to make sure the plastic owls hanging from the rafters hadn't flown off during the winter. Of course they hadn't, but tradition, you know. We'd meander over to the Big Red Spring for a funny-tasting water, but you didn't mind it because they'd give you these nifty red-and-white souvenir cups, a tradition that has since gone the way of periodontists' mouth-rinsing Dixie cups, but what are you going to do? We'd watch him get saddled before the race, then he'd watch me try to get an autograph from a jockey who was just beaten by 30. We'd go and sit by the same area in the paddock under the tree, which was a nice little tradition, until somebody needed a condominium built there. On rainy days, we'd scoot to a bench under the old scratch board inside from where the band shell is. Yes, men would walk out on a catwalk and write all the changes and results on a giant board then go back through a door that was as mysterious to me as to how that quarter kept ending under my pillow through the years. Can you taste the twin lobsters, Pat? He would gleefully say throughout the day to my mother. 
and the months leading up to that day, as tradition dictated that we dine at the long-gone Weathervane restaurant. $9.95 they were, with a coupon from the pink sheet. He never bought a pink sheet, but we always ended up with the coupon somehow. He made sure that he had the last bite of the last lobster on the table. Not because he was pacing himself, mind you, but because tradition said that he had to torture my mother over it. We'd play a round of mini-golf afterwards at Murphy's right next door. It's still there these days. Think hard enough and you could remember the sounds of your old man holding one out on the skee-ball hole. Maybe it wasn't a successful day at the track for the $10, you bet. Or maybe you got snubbed on a few autographs. But you didn't care because you were in receipt of something much more valuable at the time. Something passed on that you can never lose or forget or put a price tag on. Those days are long gone, and my father is as well. When he moved on, I asked Bill Nader of the New York Racing Association if we could do a race dedication for him and have a plaque put by where my parents sat. Gee, Kevin, that may be hard, he glumly said in his office. If we did that, then everyone would want one. When was his birthday, he asked. August 13, I told him. After an odd stare and a substantial pause, he said, That was my father's birthday. Where do you want the plaque? Something about fathers and sons. The plaque was unveiled. The race was won. And who was the winner? The daddy, of course. Why wouldn't it be? Every year afterwards, my mother would sit there during her summer sojourns, getting as close to him as possible, a catharsis of sorts. On the night of her passing a few years ago, just before she left, during the Saratoga meet, no less, I said, Mom, just give me any sign that you're with him and that all is well, that you're both happy. Two hours later, I entered her house only to find it burglarized. Only it wasn't burglarized at all. A picture had fallen off the wall and landed unbroken on the floor. It was the winner's circle photo of the daddy with my mother in it. They were together again in his favorite place and the list wasn't needed to ensure a good time. So today I'll give the plaque a bit of a shine and sit there and sip a beer with Bijou just as I have done every year because tradition dictates it, you know. And that was Kevin Cox, a.k.a. the Brooklyn Cowboy, who, by the way, became a police officer at the NYPD, an agent for horse jockeys, and is currently a professional gambler. The Brooklyn Cowboy was even featured on the Esquire Network program, Horse Players, as they followed his life as a horse handicapper. And it all started with his dad, Walter Bijou Cox, and this beautiful place called Saratoga Racetrack. And by the way, uh, it's not just fathers and sons. My little girl and I, well, it's always Santa Anita during the winter break, and I take her to L.A., and we watch that very first race. Del Mar, I'll take her to Belmont, and before she leaves home, she'll have seen it all, all the great tracks in this country. A little touch of America, Brooklyn meets upstate New York, the beautiful town of Saratoga, the remarkable place that is Saratoga Racetrack. The Cox Family Story, here on Our American Stories. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall... 
the starry crown, good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. This is Our American Stories, and our next story is a story about love and family, faith and freedom. It's brought to us by our own Greg Hengler and the good folks at the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Visitor Center in Church Creek, Maryland. Let's take a listen. On July 4th, 1776, a marvelous experiment in democracy was conceived. With a firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence, its noble, if imperfect, parents pledged their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor to bring to fruition this heroic idea. A new government in which all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But decades later, Deep within the backbone of the American economy, a large protruding tumor was causing unimaginable misery. Here's historian James Horton. By 1840, cotton was the most valuable thing this entire nation exported. No, it was more valuable than everything else this nation exported put together. By 1860, the worth of slaves the dollar value of slaves was greater than the dollar value of all the banks, all the railroads, all the manufacturing facilities of this nation put together. Slavery was no sideshow in American history, it was the main event. Slave owners have rightfully earned their wicked reputation. Strangely, the largest pro-slavery institution, the one that made slavery law and kept it in order, has consistently been absent from the abolition educators' list of evildoers. Don't forget that these people were held on the plantation by more than just the white families on the plantation. That ultimately, if you had tried to defeat the institution of slavery, you would have had to defeat the power of the plantation, the power of the local government, the power of the state government, and ultimately the power of the national government. That slavery was protected by the full force of the United States of America so that when you think about people running away or people striking out against the institution, they are embarking on a pretty ambitious uh, journey. That journey was conducted on tracks. Those tracks were part of a system of escape that became known as the Underground Railroad. But like grape nuts, the Underground Railroad was neither underground, nor was it a railroad. Here's Harriet Tubman scholar James McGowan. There was an often told story that it started around the mid-1830s after the building of the railroads uh, started in this country. Uh, Some slave catchers were chasing a slave, and I believe the area was Ohio. And uh, the slave ran away into a wooded area. And uh, the slave catchers followed him there, and uh, he suddenly disappeared. It was as if he ran away on an underground railroad. Well, it became a joke, but the joke caught on. 
when the uh, abolitionists and the anti-slavery people got involved with helping slaves escape, they took that term on. And uh, those who were helping slaves escape, they called conductors. These were the people who went right into slave territory and uh, got the slaves and brought them out. And when they brought them out, they brought them to places where they could get food and shelter. And these places were houses or barns where abolitionists and anti-slavery people were at. And they called these houses stations. And the people who lived in these houses and who provided this uh, information and this stuff, they called them station masters. And then others who became involved, like this, for example, they contributed money. They called them stockholders. And those who watched, they called them pilots. Any term that they used in the railroad, they used to describe the, the people who worked at the Underground Railroad. In an effort to survive and maintain better lives, enslaved Americans turned to someone they already trusted and relied upon throughout their lives. Steal away to Jesus. Pennsylvania had been chartered by William Penn in 1682 and heavily settled by the Quakers, a Christian organization who had condemned the practice of slavery. With the religious revivals of the 17 and 1800s, called Great Awakenings, abolition spread into Delaware. Here's historian Bradley Skelcher. There was a belief that American colonists had lost their spirituality and religious itinerant ministers traveled around this region preaching the gospel. As a part of that Great Awakening, more and more people began to encourage their fellow church members to question the morality of owning their fellow human beings. In the end, enslaved Americans ran not so much from the cruelty of their master, but toward that most fundamental of all human rights, freedom. As Americans, we want to think of ourselves as really priding ourselves on personal freedom and priding ourselves on being willing to help other people achieve freedom. And so the Underground Railroad in that regard becomes the all-American story, the story of those who refuse to accept slavery and those who refuse to accept the denial of other people's freedom. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, my Lord, I know Prepare yourself. We are about to go back in time and walk in the footsteps of one of America's greatest heroes. And I prayed to God to make me strong and able to fight. And that's what I've always prayed for ever since. Harriet Tubman, we all know her name, but who was this woman? Harriet Tubman was born into slavery in 1822 and raised in eastern Maryland with four brothers and four sisters in a 20 by 20 foot slave cabin with no beds and a dirt floor. She suffered decades of beatings, neglect and fear and saw three of her four sisters sold on the auction block, never to see them again. As strong as she was, she was also fragile. 
after getting her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by a slave owner at a village store, Harriet struggled with frequent seizures and blinding headaches. Name your price. In 1849, Harriet's slave master, Edward Brodus, recognized her diminished capacity and tried unsuccessfully to sell her. I don't know, Edward. She don't look too healthy to me. In spite of this, she began to pray for her master. Harriet's faith was the foundation that everything in her life was built on. Not an abstract idea of Christianity, but an active, constant communication with the Almighty. She sought her master's conversion. Oh, dear Lord, change that man's heart and make him a Christian. I prayed all night long for my master till the first of March. And all the time he was bringing people to look at me and trying to sell me. One day, to her horror, she learned that she would be sent to a chain gang in the far south. The tone of her prayers shifted. So I began to pray. Oh, Lord, if you ain't never gonna change that man's heart, kill him, Lord, and take him out the way. Edward, let me help! Edward! Edward! The prayer proved prophetic. Tubman's 48-year-old master died suddenly one week after the prayer, and she was filled with remorse. Oh, I would give the world full of silver and gold if I had it to bring that poor soul back. I would give everything. But he was gone. I couldn't pray for him no more. There was one of two things I had a right to. Liberty or death. If I couldn't have one, I would have the other. And when we come back, more on the life of Harriet Tubman. This is Our American Stories. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand. Precious Lord, lead me home. And we return to the story of Harriet Tubman. And by the way, you can catch all of our work at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Let's continue with the story. In 1849, at the age of 27, she heard the Lord's voice urging her to flee northward. 
After an initial attempt to escape failed, when her two brothers lost courage and forced her to return, she set out again two days later by herself, hiding during daylight hours and traveling by night, fixing her eyes on the North Star for direction until she made it to Pennsylvania's free soil. This 100-mile escape on foot north through the Underground Railroad took a week. What makes Harriet so unique is that after she escaped, she did the unthinkable. She went back. Over 11 years, she made 13 return trips to the South and helped deliver over 300 family and friends to freedom. Yes, I made my way out of slavery and into the promised land. I boarded that train and found my freedom. But I realized straight away that my freedom meant nothing if my family wasn't free neither. That's why I come back, for my beloved, for my blood. And when I come back and my family can't make that dream, I don't waste a trip. I bring friends and friends of friends back to the promised land. And I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track and I never lost a passenger. Harriet never lost because, as she said, her God maintains a perfect record. In December 1850, Tubman executed her first mission, the rescue of her niece, Kasaya, and her two children, a son and an infant daughter, who were scheduled to be sold on the auction block. With the help of Kasaya's free husband, John, Harriet arranged an unexpected and daring escape. On the steps of the Dorchester County Courthouse in Maryland, the crowd gathered that day. Kasaya was led up the block in front of those old courthouse steps. The bidding started. Kasaya's husband, John, stood in the crowd. Their eyes met. And John raised his hand and bid on the woman and children he loved. John won the bid, but he had no money. God must have been watching. Just then, the auctioneer up and decided to go to lunch. What's more, he forgot to chain Kasaya up. Psst, now go, go. Kasaya, John, and their children hid in the nearby house of a white woman. They waited till nightfall and sprinted to the waterfront. Together, they boarded a small boat. Mother, father, and children in a silent sailboat crossing the wide Chesapeake. They hid in Baltimore five weeks until Harriet got them train tickets to Philadelphia. 
they eventually made it all the way to Canada, safe from the long arm of slavery. She always made rescue attempts in the winter, but avoided going into plantations. Instead, she waited for escaping slaves, to whom she had sent messages, to meet her eight or ten miles away. Slaves would leave plantations on Saturday nights, and because of the Sunday Sabbath, they wouldn't be missed until Monday morning. Only then did their reward signs get posted, which would then be taken down immediately by men Tubman had hired. Tubman also carried a gun, a six-shooter, and was not afraid to use it. She felt her revolver offered some protection from the slave catchers and their dogs. And Tubman demanded strict obedience from her fugitives. A slave who returned to his master would likely be forced to reveal information that would compromise her mission. One time, a man gave out the second night. His feet were so swollen. He couldn't go any further. He'd rather go back and die if he must. I said, I was going to lay a bullet in him if he didn't move. Henry, get up. We've got to move on. Remember, Henry, dead Negroes tell no tales. When he heard that, (laughs) he jumped up right away and went as well as anybody. Henry made it to freedom. And years later, Harriet was asked whether she would actually kill a reluctant escapee. Yes, because if he was weak enough to give out, he'd be weak enough to betray us all and all who helped us. And do you think I let so many die just for one coward man? So the Lord said, go down. Harriet Tubman earned the nickname Moses because just as Moses followed the voice of God while leading the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, she too led so many of her people from bondage in the house of slavery to the promised land of freedom along the Underground Railroad. The world, see, don't make sense. It's broken. So the slaves, we take on another perspective. We see by faith. Our faith means everything. There's more to reality than a person's eyes can see. You hear this faith in the spiritual songs, a weeping, a praying, a pouring out of emotion and pain, and somehow of hope. Even though we enslaved chained, whipped. Hope still lives. She used spiritual songs as coded messages, warning escaping slaves of danger or directing them toward a safe path. Thank you, Lord. Harriet felt God protected and hid her during the time she had to lie in a wet swamp or bury herself in a potato field. When God provided safe passage, she always gave him the glory. I heard God speaking to me, saw his angels, and I saw my dreams. 
there were times I knew things for they was going to happen. I could see trouble coming and I could go the other way. There was times I fell into sleep but was completely awake. More aware than when I was awake. Things I can't even describe, child. Things I can't even say. And when we come back, the rest of the story, Harriet Tubman's story, here on Our American Stories. final segment of this Harriet Tubman story. Let's pick up where we last left off. In one instance in 1856, the word spread through the countryside, she's here! And four young men answered the call. What you men want is a bounty hunter. As they were making their escape, they saw posters with a $2,000 reward for their capture on them. As they made their way through the woods, Harriet suddenly stopped. God told me to stop, so I stopped. He told me to leave the road and turn left. We came to a stream, but no way across. The young men, they said it was too deep, the water too cold. And I said no such thing as too cold and walked in. Water made it up to my shoulder. But then I came out the other side. The boys followed. Later, Harriet learned that a group of desperate men seeking the $2,000 reward had been waiting on the path they were traveling and planned to seize them. If she had not responded to God's still small voice, they would have been captured. And the $40,000 reward slave owners posted for her capture was always in the back of her mind. Harriet learned about the posters, which described her age, height, and that she couldn't read or write. Once in a train station, Harriet heard two men talking about her. They were trying to decide if she was the woman in the poster. Harriet was carrying a book. She opened it and pretended to read. The men then decided that it couldn't be her. Tubman became a friend of many of the best-known abolitionists and their sympathizers. White religious crusader John Brown referred to her in his letters as one of the best and bravest persons on this continent, General Tubman as we call her. 
Here's professor of constitutional law, Paul Finkelman and James Horton. The people who are involved in the Underground Railroad are breaking a federal law. Uh, what they would have, of course, made the argument, and they did it all the time, is that there was a higher law, the law of God. It was dangerous to be involved with the Underground Railroad, no matter what color you were. I mean, there are white people who spent years of their lives in jail. Here's Tubman scholar Judith Bentley, historian Clara Small, and again, James McGowan discussing Tubman's relationship with one of the most prominent figures in the history of the Underground Railroad, a devout white Christian named Thomas Garrett. When she started going back to bring more people uh, out of the Eastern Shore, uh, she needed financial backing. She needed places to stay. She needed contacts, and Garrett was that, that contact. Thomas Garrett had money. He had social position. And as a result, he was given Harriet money. He also gave her uh, passageway and shoes, and clo- as well as clothing and food. He would tell the story in his letters to two ladies in Scotland who were sending money over to Harriet Tubman, how she came to his house and practically demanded money. She would say to him, for example, well, I know you've got money for me because God said so. And he would tease her. He would say, well, how do you know I got money for you, Harry? And, you know, I give my money to most of the black people here in Wilmington, and I don't have any money. She said, oh, no, you've got money for me, and you've got shoes because God told me. And he would be nonplussed at her saying this, but he, he would have it. God bless you, Mr. Garrett said this of Harriet. I never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken direct to her soul. And her faith in a supreme power truly was great. During the Civil War, Tubman served as a nurse, laundress, and spy with the Union forces. She taught freed black women how to make things that they could sell in order to earn a living. Harriet Tubman would not be satisfied until every person could experience true freedom. After the war, she made her home in Auburn, New York, and despite numerous honors, spent her last years in poverty until a white woman named Sarah Bradford visited Harriet and listened to her life story. In 1869, Sarah Bradford published Harriet's biography, Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman, and another in 1886, The Moses of Her People. All the money they earned went to Harriet. Finally, on March 10th, 1913, the 93-year-old Harriet Tubman caught pneumonia and knew the end was near. She asked her friends and family to gather around her bed, as she had done so many times before. Harriet raised her voice and gave instruction to everyone. Sing, swing low, sweet chariot to me. The eyes of those in the room brimmed with tears, and the people tried to stifle sobs as they sang softly. Just as her friends and family sang the final verse, she whispered her final words, I go to prepare a place for you. Flags flew at half-mast in Auburn, She was buried with military honors in Fort Hill Cemetery in New York. 
Booker T. Washington delivered the eulogy. Many letters were found in Harriet's room after she passed. One letter had been refolded so many times that it had almost fallen apart. It was from the great leader of the abolitionist movement and Harriet's friend, Frederick Douglass. Here's what he wrote. Most that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been in the public, and I received much encouragement at every step of the way. You, on the other hand, have labored in a private way. I have had the applause of the crowd and the satisfaction that comes of being approved by the multitude, while most that you have done has been witnessed by a few trembling, scared, and foot-sore bondmen and women whom you have led out of the house of bondage and whose heartfelt God bless you has been your only reward. The midnight sky and the silent stars have been the witness of your devotion to freedom and of your heroism. Here's Jay Meredith, whose great-great-grandfather owned the village store where Harriet Tubman got her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by the slave owner. Anybody that would know anything about Harriet Tubman would have to um, recognize her as a true American hero. And here is the main reason why, is that if you think about Harriet Tubman, you're going to see an African-American woman in 1849, okay, when women had no rights, black women had less than no rights. She was five feet tall. She was illiterate. Again, she was enslaved, and she was able to accomplish feats that nobody else could accomplish. And to me, how can you not admire somebody like that? You know, I mean, you've got a woman who has everything in the world going against her, everything. And I tell people when they come in here, you know, whether you're white, whether you're black, no matter, even if you have prejudices, if you look at an individual like a Harriet Tubman, you know, you have to admire, even sitting here telling the story, it gives me goosebumps. It is here, through Harriet Tubman's work in the Underground Railroad, where we can see both fugitive and free Americans, white and black, drawn by a cause that compelled them to come together. There have been times in American history when we have been able to form alliances cross-racial lines. The fact is that we don't hear as much about that as we ought to. And it's important that we do, because it's awfully hard to imagine that we can form racial alliances in the 21st century unless we understand that there's a strong tradition that we can draw upon. And although there have always been hostilities, there have always been difficulties across racial lines, there have also always been some people who were able and willing to put their fortunes and their lives on the line for other people. And I think that's a tradition that we need to draw on. That's a tradition of the Underground Railroad. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And today, we're going to tell the story of Eric Motley, who has written a fabulous memoir about a young man's odyssey of grace and gratitude. Eric, thanks for joining us. I want to begin at the beginning of your book. Quote, Amos and Bernice Perry lived with their 14 children in Madison Park, a close-knit cocoon of several hundred self-reliant descendants of former slaves on the outskirts of Montgomery, Alabama, short on money and long on faith. Eric, why does your book begin there? Well, every story has a beginning. And the beginning of my story to a large degree is the misfortune and fortune of two individuals, Bernice and Amos Perry. They were the people who gave birth not to just 14 kids, but one of those kids became the woman who eventually was surrendered in love to some neighbors. And so Bernice and Amos were just hardworking people, and Bernice discovered that she had cancer, and she dealt with it in her own way with the opportunities that were afforded to her for medical assistance, and they were limited in Montgomery, Alabama. And she found herself at a point where she knew that she would not live. But she also had these friends, George Washington Motley and his wife, Mamie Motley, who were always in and out of their house for fish fries, for church meetings, wonderful gatherings and gossip. But George and Mamie, who had tried several times, were never able to produce a child of their own. And Bernice realized that she had one child who was a bit special. But they invited the Motleys over for a conversation, and it was about offering up their one child, Barbara Ann Perry, to the Motleys for adoption. She was nine years old. She had lived most of her life inheriting the outworn and outgrown shoes of her siblings and dresses. And so this little girl with so much promise, about to lose her mom, was kindly surrendered over to the Motleys. And George and Mamie Motley answered the question, would you like to adopt this child? And their answer was yes. And they gave this child a home and new beginnings and new opportunities. And Bernice, a beautiful story, Bernice, on her way to the hospital, her last trip turned in the ambulance and she asked, 
was the adoption finalized? And the person went there and said, well, you know the adoption was finalized. It was finalized a while ago. And she said, I just wanted to hear it one more time. I just wanted to have the affirmation that little Barbara Ann was becoming a motley. And they gave her things that she never probably dreamed of having. And like most of life, which is filled with a lot of incidents and accidents and providence, she became pregnant at age 19. And she gave birth to a bundle of unformed possibility. And George and Mamie loved her no less. They embraced her. And they tucked this little baby, and they realized that here, as Faulkner would say, there's much you could do with the human material of life. And so they nurtured that child, and those people became my grandparents. And then in many ways, they adopted me, and they chose to become my mama and my daddy. Eric, you write about your grandparents adopting a complete stranger, quote, I once asked Daddy for an explanation, and after a long, reflective pause, he responded simply, Why not? What else was there to do? After all, you are our grandson. And then you wrote, quote, In one quiet, unheralded act, because of unexpected circumstances and their good hearts, my life's destiny changed. It was the blessing of my life. Let's talk about Madison Park. Where is Madison Park, and what should people know about this little hamlet? Madison Park is an idea. In 1880, there were a group of freed slaves, and they had nothing except the clothes on their back and a little money they had saved, but they had far more. They had dreams and aspirations, and one of them was a guy named Eli Madison, and Eli could read and he could write, and he was no doubt taught to read and write by his uh, plantation owner's daughter. And Eli had somewhere along the way, no doubt, heard the words, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and their pursuit of happiness. And so he dreamed a lot about what it could be like to be a freed slave. He dreamed a lot about what it could be to experience these truths that Thomas Jefferson wrote about in 1776. And so when he was freed... He gathered other friends of his that he had talked about this idea with. They pulled together enough resources to buy a very small parcel of land. And that parcel of land was at the center of a plantation. And slowly they were able to buy this entire plantation that was for sale in Montgomery, Alabama. And they built a church to offer up praise and thanksgiving for a God who had delivered them to their promised land. They, in the back of Eli Madison's house, built an extra room and converted that into a classroom so that kids could learn the basics of reading and writing. And they gathered in the open park early one morning to offer prayers together, as if to show gratitude for not only the deliverance to this place, but gratitude for the power of people coming together and forming community. We know that it was the first time that a group of freed slaves in the South had purchased a plantation. And in many ways, they wanted to create it as kind of a symbol of what could be done, a city on the hill. And it was a great experiment. Other freed slaves would visit Madison Park. My grandfather, George Washington Motley, George Washington Motley's grandfather, 
John Wesley Motley was one of those early pioneers who came with Eli Madison to lay claim on the promise of America and a better life. And so he was given a small parcel of land on this plantation, and he built a small shotgun house, and he and his wife and their kids and eventually their grandkids came in and out of that house. And my grandfather has very few recollections except he remembers visiting his grandfather's house and over the front door was a picture of Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator. And over the back door, the back door was a very important door because it led out to the garden. Over the back door was a picture of a cross, a wooden cross. And it was a reminder to my grandfather that in coming and going, he was freed. And so uh, that little boy, George Washington Motley, who was named by his grandfather as such to remind him that this land is your land. It's no less than the trees and the stars, and you have a right to be here. And he named him to remind him that there was a, a president in this country who... Um, held to principles and beliefs, and, and he was a part of that experiment. And that grandson, of course, grew uh, up to be a farmer and to be a carpenter like his grandfather, and he planted seed and he nurtured seed. And on that same piece of land, he ended up growing up and living in that same house. And so that's the same house that I grew up in. And so the, the promise of the idea was manifested in the lives of people who inherited not just a place and a home, but an idea and a, and a birthright that they hold very fast to. Eric, you say of your grandfather in the book, quote, he believed in taking the time to get things right. To him, shortcuts were inexcusable. Symmetry, precision, and order meant everything. You went on to describe the many houses he built in Madison Park, but then you wrote this, quote, Daddy was especially proud that he helped build about half of the black churches in Montgomery, including Union Chapel Church. Why was that so important to him? My grandfather, he hardly spoke. He was very silent and reflective. People would come over to the house and, and they would sit on the back porch and they would shoot the breeze. And my grandmother, who was an incredible conversationalist, who never stopped talking, my grandfather would just sit there and he would take in everything and would probably only respond two or three times in the course of a conversation. Uh, but he was a very deeply reflective man and in many ways he was a servant leader. And he believed that one of the great gifts that he was given, the gift of carpentry, how to build things and how to make them last and sustain time and the elements of nature and weather, <clears throat> was his gift uh, of building churches. And to him, it was an outward expression of his own gratitude to a God who had provided for his family, who had provided him the opportunity to use his hands to provide for his family. And he built the church that I grew up in, the church where I was baptized. And the altar in that church uh, was an altar that he built from the very timbers on the land where the church was rebuilt. And 
I have gone back repeatedly to that place over the years of my leaving Madison Park, and I have knelt in prayer. And I, I recall with wonderful recollection of everything that church meant to my grandfather, and, and his spirit was there. Eric, let's talk about generosity, and I'll read one more passage about him. Quote, People could ask Mama and Daddy for anything. When bills needed to be paid and someone ran a little short, they came to George and Mossy Motley. A ride to the store for groceries? Daddy said yes. He made concrete headstones for the dead whose families couldn't afford polished granite. They never kept account of the deed done for the others. They never kept account of the deed done for others. To them, everything, quote, rounded itself out. You got to witness this generosity. You also experienced that type of generosity from the community. Talk about that. When my grandfather died, I packed away a lot of his belongings. And only when my grandmother died in 2011 was I able to go through the attic and pack up everything. And I shipped some of it here to my current home in Washington. And I was going through a ledger, and there were all of these receipts that my grandfather had collected. And he meticulously would write on these receipts, paid in full. And, um, and so much of my life has been paid in full, in part because of the people of Madison Park. It's a community but a community is no greater than the people who are comprised of it. Look, I grew up and I became the little Einstein of Madison Park. I was precocious, I asked a lot of questions, and there were people who were always giving me books to read, and, and then all of a sudden, I was uh, sent away into the city as a part of the integration plan, and I was sent away to this wonderful school, and I was in the reading group, The Rabbits. We were the accelerated read readers. And then one day the teacher sent a note home to my grandmother, sadly informing her that I had been demoted from the rabbits to the turtles. And my grandmother re read that note. I never will forget her taking that note, and she probably read it about five times as I sat in the room watching her. And my grandmother's not one to discriminate, but she knows the difference between rabbits and turtles. And so she got up and she picked up the phone and she called the one person that she thought could help remedy the situation. And her name, her proper name, Emma Madison Bell. She was the granddaughter of Eli Madison, the founder of Madison Park. She was already in her 80s. She was a retired teacher. She had been retired already some 40, 50 years. But she was a smart woman. And my grandmother phoned her and she asked her to come over. And in Madison Park, we all called her Aunt Shine because everywhere she went, light would follow. And she came over to the house. She tucked the letter. She read it. And she asked that I be excused. I went to the kitchen and closed the door, but kept my ears pressed to the door to hear the conversation. And she said to my grandparents, we have a problem. But don't worry. We believe in resurrection. We believe in resurrection. And I got to be truthful. I was about seven years old. I had spent my entire life in Sunday school. And I knew 
that before there was a resurrection, there was a crucifixion. So I got a bit alarmed. <laughs> but Aunt Shine opened the door, and she warmly embraced me, and she said, Everything is going to be okay. Trust me. You'll be a rabbit before you know it. And two remarkable acts of generosity were seated in that moment. She told my grandparents that she and her sisters, all retired teachers, all in their 70s and 80s, and her sister-in-law, Prince Ella Madison, would come by my house every day to tutor me. And as beautiful as this sound, it was quite intimidating as well. These were very stern women. And I want to come back to that. The other beautiful act of generosity, that following Sunday at church, she had asked the minister, as if she was making a public service announcement, if she could come to the front and stand before the congregants and make a statement. And I never will forget sitting with my grandmother and grandfather on the front pew of the church and seeing Aunt Shine coming down the aisle and everyone leaning forward to hear what she had to say. And she said, brothers and sisters, one of our bright little stars in this community is growing dim. Little Eric Motley, and she pointed over at me, this past week was demoted from a rabbit to a turtle. But we believe in resurrection. And we believe in community. And we all have a part to play. And I'm going to tutor him. So why am I asking you to be a part of this? Because I'm going to be on his porch with his grandparents this afternoon and whatever reading matter you have that you can afford to give up, I want you to drop it by the Motley's house. You would have thought that afternoon a paper drive was taking place. Almost everyone in Madison Park who had something of reading matter came by the house. Someone brought by an encyclopedia, Volume L. Everything you want to know about anything that begins with an L, I'm your guy. And you know, that's all they had. They only had volume L of Encyclopedia Britannica. Someone brought by a wonderful copy of an almanac that was predicting weather for that year, 1965. Someone brought by a Life magazine, a People magazine. But someone brought by a beautiful volume of English verse. It had no table of contents. It had no cover. It had no index but it was so thickly, beautifully sewn with the verse of Tennyson and Shakespeare and William Wordsworth and Byron and Keats. And my grandfather took the first page and he read to me aloud the poem and he had me to write it out. I never will forget this because I have the poem committed to memory now. There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream and every common sight to me did seem appareled in the freshness of a dream. As it were, it is no more. The rainbow comes and goes, and lovely is the rose. And this I know, where'er I go, that there has passed away a glory from the earth. It was on that Tuesday of that same week that Aunt Shine showed up with her sisters and her sister-in-law and started a two-year tutorial program at my grandparents' dining room table. And every session was began with my standing up 
and my reciting the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. They had written it out for me. They had taught me word by word this important, this important um, proclamation of belief. They required me to memorize the entire Gettysburg Address, age seven, mind you. And then I had to recite the Apostles' Creed, the Affirmation of Faith, because we were Methodist. And then I had to recite the words of James Weldon Johnson's Lift Every Voice and Sing, Till Earth and Heaven Rings. And then we would sit down and we would begin math and social studies and science and history and, of course, reading. And that was every day. Spring, summer, winter, fall. And you see, it's that generosity. We, you know, we all drink from wells we did not dig. We all rest under shade trees we did not plant. We're all beneficiaries of the gifts of others. And some of them, we know their names, and others will never know uh, what they did in the quiet of night for us or in those unspoken moments where they gave us affirmation or unheralded support. And and that was the stuff from Madison Park. And so Madison Park, at its core, was founded on generosity. I'd like to read another passage from your book, Eric. Quote, Every aspect of the common life was imbued with an aspect of we, not me. Alienation is hard in a place where we all believed we were responsible for one another. What did that look like? No one in Madison Park was in debt. <laughs> we were all in debt. And no one was responsible for, we use the term raising versus rearing, raising their child alone. We were all responsible. I went away to college, and the day that I went away to college, all the people in Madison Park, unbeknownst to me, had gathered in the backyard. And my grandfather had sold his used car for a new used car. And I was only going 88 miles away from Montgomery to Birmingham to this wonderful university, Samford University. And my grandmother came out and she said, I think you need to come outside. And I went outside and I heard all of the noise and all the excitement. And there were over 100 people standing outside, and they were members of our church and our community. And they were there to send me off to college. And no one in my family had been to college. Very few of my friends had the opportunity of going out to college. And so they were there, and someone from the Baptist church gave me an envelope, and someone from my church gave me an envelope, and a lady started to sing, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds, Mrs. Rosebud Hall, who was well known for her red velvet cakes and and another woman gave me some iced potatoes because, you know, I'll need iced potatoes when I go up to college. And someone gave me a Cool Whip container of collard greens. And they were all there. And my grandfather, so few in words, turned to me because there was a little woman in our community who had so very little. And I was aware that people had together pooled resources to help her pay her utility bills. And she reached out to me with a $5 bill and a couple of dollars wadded up, and she wanted to give it to me. And I knew that all of my life we had been told never to take anything away from Mrs. Beulah Bird. And my grandfather said, take it. 
she wants to be a part of sending you off. This is her investment in you. And in that one moment, in the twinkling of an eye, I came to the full realization that my journey was their journey. That I was going not to get an education for myself, but for them and for their grandchildren and for my friends. The trips and the experiences all along the way, I was taking the people of Madison Park with me. I was responsible for this precious cargo. And so life is to a large degree about REM, relationships, experiences, and memories. And at every turning, I felt the full pressure, the positive, beautiful pressure of the faces and the people of Madison Park. Eric, you gave a lot of credit for being where you are today because of the many mentors you've had. One of those men is Dr. Thomas Quartz. Tell us about the effect he had on your life. Seldom does a day go by that I don't remember him. Dr. Thomas Quartz was the president of Sanford University. And I had a very persistent 12th grade teacher by the name of Joan Waterson, who is still alive, living in Florida, who communicates with me. And she had such great expectations for me. She was my English teacher at Robert E. Lee High School in Montgomery, Alabama. And she knew that I was saving up money to go to college. And one day she asked if I would stay after class so that she could talk to me. And she said to me, I don't know what, what you're thinking. I hear that you're thinking of a place like Princeton or Harvard. Uh, but let me tell you about a university in Birmingham named Sanford University. My daughter went there, and it's an incredible school. And I think you should look at it and spend some time on the Internet doing some research on Sanford. And by the way, I'm willing to help you. And so Joan Waterson found herself um, a couple of weeks later helping me with my application. And the same night that she was helping me with my application, her husband, who was the secretary to the Sunday School Board, uh, the Alabama Baptist Association, found himself at a dinner party, a higher education dinner, banquet, and he was seated across from Dr. Thomas Quartz. And Mr. Waterson, Mr. Don Waterson, scribbled on the cloth napkin, my wife has a student, an African-American student in Montgomery, who would make a fine addition to the community of Sanford University. And Dr. Quartz on that napkin wrote in response, have your wife to reach out to me to tell me about this young man. And Mrs. Waterson didn't miss a beat. <laughs> she had her husband to follow up the very next day, and he provided me a full academic scholarship. And he was not just committed to my getting the scholarship, but when I arrived at Sanford, he tucked me under his wings and assured me that whatever I needed in my quest to get a good education, he was there to help me. 
He knew my story. He knew the sacrifice of my grandparents, the investment of the people from this small community in Montgomery, Madison Park. And he wanted to be a part of helping me to realize their dreams and their aspirations. And that relationship did not end at Sanford. He visited me when I went away to Scotland, and unbeknownst to me, he reached out to the university president at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and he said to him, you have an incredible young man at your university. His name is Eric Motley, and he is on a scholarship. But I would like you to let the people in the financial aid office know that should he ever need resources, I'm the first person that need to be informed because we want to make sure he has the resources at his disposal to fulfill his educational opportunity there in Scotland. Dr. Quartz visited me in Scotland, and he became my mentor, and he was the person who told me that you have a story to tell and that you need to tell the story. And he looked at my first drafts as I started writing Madison Park, and, um, and of course he ended up dying. There is no person outside of my grandparents who have influenced my way of thinking about excellence and beauty and truth than Dr. Quartz. I very seldom can speak about my life experience and not acknowledge that this one individual who was a university president took the time and interest in my life uh, to help me. Just another wonderful reminder that mine has been an odyssey of both grace and gratitude. And Eric, you had a special reminder of that when you were working in the White House for President George W. Bush. Tell us about that. Probably every other week, <laughs> I spend about 20 minutes in the Oval Office with the President. And maybe a, a wonderful place to end this great narrative is to say that on one morning, I was invited by my boss at the White House. I was still a very new, young, junior White House staffer. And of course, at the very end, I took on more of a, a leadership role. But in those early months there, my boss decided to take me into the Oval Office. And he took me into the Oval Office. And President Bush looked up. And my boss, Clay Johnson, who has become a major pillar in my life, just one of the most principled individuals who, uh, at my first, my first real professional job outside of graduate school, was working at the White House. And, and it was Clay Johnson and Rebecca Contreras and Ron Bellamy, three individuals who tucked me under their wings and, and told me that um, we got your back. And when there are hard questions and you don't know how to answer those questions, don't worry, there are enough of us here who've been around for a very long time who could help you, but always do what is right. Always lean towards what you believe to be right. And so here I found myself that morning in the Oval Office, overwhelmed by that natural light that just seems to be so ever radiant in that space. And Clay Johnson looked at the president and he said, Mr. President, I want to tell you about Eric Motley. He's a new member of our team, and I brought him in for this briefing this morning so that he could at least audit. 
And the president looked and he goes, boy, it's pretty soon for you to be here. You just started not long ago and you're already in the Oval Office. And then he said, I know all about you. Margaret Tutwiler, who had helped me to secure the job, Margaret Tutwiler has told me all about you. I know that you came from a small town in Montgomery, Alabama. I know that your grandparents raised you along with the entire community. I know that it took a village. <laughs> and now you're here. And so don't let down your grandparents and the people of Madison Park. They taught you well. This is your opportunity to really show them that you listened and that you paid attention and that you're going to do what's right and that you're taking this opportunity as a great responsibility. And, you know, that's, that's pretty powerful coming from the leader of the free world, the president of the United States, reminding you of where you've come from, his knowing your story, and his expecting you to live into the values that the people who found at Madison Park held on to uh, for all of their lives and passed down from one generation to the next. I found myself often in the office just gazing at the picture of Abraham Lincoln over the mantle in the Oval Office. And on one occasion, I was looking at the picture of Abraham Lincoln. There's George Washington, pardon me, who's over the mantle, and Abraham Lincoln is was in to the side of the um, desk, resolute, the president's desk. And the president saw me one day kind of drifting off. And he said, Motley, are you paying attention? What are you looking at? And he said, you're looking at Abraham Lincoln. I know the story. And in so many ways, he was acknowledging that he knew the story that I had shared with Clay Johnson and Margaret Tutwiler of how my grandfather grew up looking every day at Abraham Lincoln as he came and left his grandfather's house. And my grandfather never would have imagined. My grandfather did not live long enough to see me graduate from graduate school and get a job at the White House. But the very thought that the picture of this man that my grandfather looked at was probably really not all that different from the same picture that I looked at once a week when I went into the Oval Office. Um, my grandfather perhaps could not have imagined but then again, it was my grandfather. And no doubt he could have imagined what a life of love, a life of affirmation, a life of community, a life of prayers, a life of hope and faith could afford his grandson in time. And you've been listening to Eric Motley and What an American Story. The book is Madison Park a place for hope, and my goodness, it was a place for hope. Pick it up at Amazon.com, spread it around. It is a beauty. And my goodness, I just keep going back to that first act of generosity. A random community member just adopting this girl. And by virtue of doing that, adopting this girl's son. And then, of course, that one conversation, the turtle-rabbit conversation with the old Mrs. Shine. We have a problem, but we believe in resurrection. And that says a lot about that hope. It springs from the faith, folks. That's where it comes from. 
Eric Motley's story, Madison Park's story in the end, Madison Park, Alabama, here on Our American Stories.